Toots. Hey everyone, and welcome to Brave New Church. This is your host, Brad, and this week we are going to begin a multi-week series of conversations about how we can create new models to engage the spirituality of people across the generations in today's world. To have this conversation, we're going to cut to the heart of the question of why we do what we do in churches and in communities of faith. The truth is that very often we follow models and patterns of ministry because they are familiar, because we know them and we know how to operate them. But what we're finding in the world today is that people's spirituality and even the language they use to wrestle with questions of meaning and purpose and faith is fundamentally shifting. However, the ways that we do church, the models of ministry that you will encounter when you walk through the door of most congregations is still very much the same as it's been for the past 20 or 30 or sometimes even 50 years. What's critical is that we begin not by what is familiar, but by asking the question of what is God doing in the world today that should reframe the language we use to have conversations about faith practices and about what it means to be the church. And so in this brave new age that we are now living in, as we begin to form what a brave new church for this time and place might look like, we kick off our conversation this week with an exploration of what it might look like to begin to imagine new wineskins that we might house this new wine in. If you're familiar with the metaphor, in the Gospels, Jesus talks about the importance of housing new wine in new wineskins, and not simply in old wineskins, which will burst the, the skins and waste the wine. For a new landscape, a new manner of being is necessary. And so this week, we explore how to begin to create new wineskins for new wine, as we work to rethink everything. to talk with me about this this week is a very special guest, the Reverend Dr. Rich Melheim. Rich has worked with faith formation, youth ministry, confirmation programs, and discipleship in general for decades, and is one of the foremost voices in the Lutheran world when it comes to faith formation and deepening the relationships in our communities of faith. Some of you may recognize Rich from the work he's currently involved with in helping to create intergenerational communities of faith that deepen our relationships with one another and with God. Listen in as Rich and I explore how we can start to rethink everything for this brave new world we find ourselves living in. So hi, Rich. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk a little bit today. Uh, I'm really curious to, to hear a little bit about your your thoughts on some things with the church and all, but first, I'd just love to know 
how you ended up doing the work that you're doing because uh, it's a little unique, it's a little eclectic, but it's it's kind of fun. So, uh, so, so, what's your story? I was a bored dyslexic child who had to draw pictures from childhood all the way through my D men. I always knew music worked. I didn't know why it worked, and so I launched into becoming an amateur neurologist. I always knew art worked. I didn't know why it worked, but why is a picture worth a thousand words? Now, neurologically, your ears can hear 10,000 bits of information a second, but your eyes can see 7 billion bits per second. And the reason a picture, a picture isn't worth a thousand words. It's worth 700,000 words in terms of raw information coming to the brain. So I got involved in theater and art and music at a very young age, but I worked at Bible camps and, you know, what percentage of uh, pastors and youth workers were a kid who had a significant experience at camp? And it was such a holistic environment. Um, it was pivotal in my life. I ended up working at a camp for five years, met my wife of 39 years at a camp and just all those wonderful things. But camp, there's theater and there's music and there's art and there's dance and there's servanthood and there's friendship. And it's always a small group model. So I got into youth ministry straight out of uh, – Straight out of actually, I was doing youth ministry as a camp counselor, but straight out of seminary, oh went to a big church whose uh, youth pastor was just removed, and I wanted to change the focus immediately. So we started doing drama and taking kids on the road. Uh, ten years into that first call, I was called to a church whose youth pastor just killed himself, and I I tried to change the focus again, uh, but we couldn't just have you know, skits and theater and music and dance and programming. Everybody thinks they want to hire a youth pastor to just go out and do programming. And I knew we needed a heavy dose of pastoral care. Uh, So we built a model that was built on small group ministry. And this was a time in the Lutheran church when most confirmation classes were a class. And we said, we're going to have a church with no class. We will have no class at this church. We're going to have uh, intimacy with highs and lows. We're going to have shared ministry with pastoral care, caring for each other. We're going to have upfront theater and small group care where the kids are creating the theater and the kids are doing the care, where we redefine youth ministry as youth doing ministry, not youth doing programs. And so in the summer of 93, the end of the summer, uh, I took a year off from my two different youth ministry. Uh, I was an ordained pastor starting at 81. Uh, but in the summer of 93, I thought I took a year off to talk about models and systems. My favorite systems thinker at that time was at MIT, Peter Senge, who wrote the book, The Fifth Discipline. And he said, it's not what the system is. It's what the system does. And so if you think of millennials in the Lutheran church, for instance, I'm a Lutheran ordained uh, minister. They're all going away and not coming back. Yep. You like that system? Whatever it is we're doing, it's not working. Mm-hmm. So in, in 1993, I wrote an article called Conformation is Dead, and that launched me into the year off. And I'm still on my year off. Uh, <laughs> started. I highly recommend a, a 15 to 27-year sabbatical if you can pull it off. But what we're doing is not working. So let's not do that anymore. I don't watch a lot of Dr. Phil, but a lot of times on Dr. Phil, someone will explain their problem and uh, he'll say, so how's that working for you? It's not. <laughs> okay, why don't you do something else? Right. So 
I think when it comes to our work, especially anybody working with young adults or children or parents or elders, because I'm big into cross-gen right now as a healthier system, if it's not working, let's try something else. Yeah, that is so true. And so, I mean, you, you kind of hinted at it, but within the system that we still really have as the church, a system's almost like a machine. You put in certain inputs and you get certain set outputs. And so what is it about that machine, that system, that still somehow seems to be producing an output of whole generations really not being connected to communities of faith? From a systems perspective, what do you think might be going on there? I've really put the last 23 years into asking that question. And it a systems problem has multiple reasons for the problem. And a systems solution needs multiple pieces converging at the same time. You need to understand the nature of the problem and you need to understand what are the most significant parts of that problem and then what are the most, who are the most significant people in a child's life? What are the most significant times in their scope and sequence of their first 18 years? And in the scope and sequence of the day, what's the most effective time in the day to do bonding and relationship and Christian education. It's not Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Teenagers still have melatonin, the sleep drug in their brain at 10 o'clock in the morning. The most significant time to learn anything is when you lie down and when you rise. This is neurological. God, mm. God must have read some of those brain books. Yeah, that sounds familiar, that, that, <laughs> that reference. <laughs> because whatever you plant before you go to sleep, during the rapid eye movement and the slow wave movement uh, part, part of te- uh, sleep, we get memory consolidation and creativity, and we build our values literally in our sleep. I also have a chapter in our book, Holding Your Family Together, that starting on page 201, the epilogue is called Why Nighttime is the Right Time. And it basically explains that if you were just looking for the right time of the day to do your theological work, to do your problem solving, to do your creativity and bonding, it would be the few minutes before you go to sleep. And then right when you wake up, you're most aware of what the solutions are. If you want to do theology with a teenager, start with a baby. And make sure you're doing your highs and lows every night, bringing in the scripture, talking, praying, and blessing. That's the faith five um, piece that we've been teaching. A systems problem needs a system solution. And we wonder why the kids don't come back. I don't think they were ever there. You can't come back to a place you've never been. How do we get them there? And I would suggest every week at church in a cross-generational engagement with multiple ages and stages and sages, multiple voices sharing highs and lows, multiple stories. The best grad programs in the world are all about case studies. Let's look at a real situation and try to figure out an answer, right? What if your homes were seminaries, seedbeds of case studies every night? Every week in church modeling it, every night in every home, going back to the story over and over again. I think that's one systems approach to the system's problem. We cannot allow the drop-off parent. I'm sorry. Tell me tell me who you want your child to confide in and go to when they have a broken heart or when they're on the edge of suicide. You want to hire this out? You want to outsource this? 40% of American teenagers have a suicide plan. You don't even know where they are today. You don't even know their friends. You don't know where they are mentally. You might know where they are physically. You don't know where they are mentally and spiritually. We cannot outsource faith incubation, faith formation anymore. 
Another piece of the system is we are beyond the television era. We're still doing television era teaching to a post-television era generation. These kids don't give a rip about your show. If they are not part of the show, part of the creation, part of the exploration, so don't do a show for them anymore. This this is applied to worship. Why would I go and sit and watch somebody else's show? You know, if you take out all of the actual things happening in, in, in worship or the specifics and just look at the imperatives, stand here, sit here, sing now, pray now, hug now, give now, sit here. What post-television era millennial or younger wants to go somewhere to be told what to do for an hour? I don't know many of them. (laughs) So they're not there. They're physically, they're gone at the end of confirmation. We might as well make the closing hymn for confirmation. Na, 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 na. Hey, hey, hey. We might as well make that the hymn. Put it in the new purple hymnal. We are sending the lemmings off the cliff and nobody's saying anything about it. What we're doing is not working. We cannot continue to do what we're doing. And so we need to take a systems approach to the systems problem, which means everything is on the table. There's nothing sacred here except Jesus Christ. Okay? Mm-hmm. Systems in place, the methods, the models, the material. Your answer isn't in a new workbook or curriculum. And by the way, I sell great workbooks and curriculum, but that's <laughs> not your answer. That is one piece that's it's just so far removed from the answer to your problem. Yeah. And yeah. for the best people, what are the best times? What are the best, best methods, models, and materials? And what works in your church has a certain neurological basis that will work everywhere. There's a, cert- there's a mo- certain amount of stuff that will happen in the human brain when they're giving in a significant way, receiving in a significant way, when they're having some intimacy built in. Somebody really knows my highs and lows and is praying for me. When they're having a bite-sized uh, call to ministry that they're doing every week at church, and when they're having fun, I've written a chapter in my book, uh, "Rich Learning on the Neurology of Fun," and oh my goodness, what you get when you're having fun—you're getting a lot of dopamine, which means I want to be around these people. Um, so I think we have to rethink worship seriously. The system that we have in place isn't working. I have to think we have to rethink education. I think we have to rethink pastoral care. The word pastor is shepherd. Anyone who held a baby in their arms and made a promise to tend the flock of God in their charge on that baptism day, we have to ordain them as a pastor. The word ordain is to set aside for ministry. And then we have to call them every night in every home to be the minister because that's the most significant, significant time in the child's life. We have to stop thinking program and start thinking process. We have to stop thinking class and start thinking community. Uh, Everything's on the table because we're dead. Now, God's going to build the church. That's not our job. The job of the Holy Spirit's already taken. God will build the church. No problem. But I would love people from our history and heritage and our rich Protestant. uh, I'm a Lutheran. I would love something from the Lutherans to be there when the future is being built. I've three trips to Ethiopia this year. One week, one uh, trip for uh, eight weeks. I took eight young adults, um, two of my best teachers from India. We interviewed 85 young Ethiopians, musicians, artists, and dancers from the Makana Yesu Church. We took 20 of them into a, an experimental pilot project. And it's just so fantastic. School is over and my teachers are singing and dancing and praying all, you know, for another two hours. They won't go home. What church has young adults 
singing and dancing and crying and praying and they won't go home. It's so true. I was in Tanzania this summer and the worship services are three hours long and no one wants to leave. No one wants to leave. <laughs> and the Makani Yesu Church grew by 650,000 in 2015. Wow. It grew by 800,000 in 2016 and it'll grow by a million. And these people love each other and they're, they're, you know, most of them are really poor by any standards we would have. And their community, their life, their, their reliance. And this, the, we work with the Oromo people who are really persecuted. They're 40% mm. of the population and 80% of the prisons. Wow. 160 Oromo students were just shot dead because they decided to protest. I mean, th- and these people got nothing and they have everything. And we got everything and we got nothing. And we're dying on the vine. The Holy Spirit will build the church, but not in the wineskins that we're pouring this new wine into. Right. So we have to we have to rethink everything. I hope, as I know so many of us do, that we can reimagine and redesign how we do church in this Reformation year. And Amen. I just thank I thank you for the many ways that you're getting that conversation started. So thanks again. All right. Take care. Blessings. <laughs> thanks, Rich. Well, I hope that you found my conversation with Rich as enlightening and powerful and inspiring as I did. Because the truth is that we all need to begin to imagine what it looks like to create these new wineskins, new models for new wine, for the living and active work that God and the Holy Spirit are doing in our world today, which is already fundamentally changing the way that whole generations are encountering God and creating meaning in their lives. How we pass our faith from generation to generation and how we engage questions and conversations of meaning and purpose and spirituality is all changing. But by having conversations like this one, we can know, we can rest assured that while the church of the future may look different from the church of yesterday, God goes on ahead of us, charting the course for that brave new future. And we, along with people like Rich, we go there together. I hope you'll continue to tune into the podcast and follow us on iTunes, as well as to subscribe to our blog at bravenewchurch.org, and also to explore the many resources and other tools that are available for you at Brave New Church. This ministry exists to strengthen you and the work that is going on in your congregation and your life as you walk together with one another. And so, until next time, may you find what God is already up to in your neighborhood.